Good morning. Thank you again for uh, singing that song. Michael and I were looking for some song that I thought might fit with the message, and uh, we were struggling, and so we resorted to a new song, and uh, I hope you enjoyed the words of it. Uh, we're continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians, as I expect almost everybody here knows. Uh, we've made it as far as chapter 4 and verse 17, so we'll go ahead and start there and read up to verse 24, Ephesians chapter 4, starting verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardening of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to licentiousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in righteousness and true holiness. The key word that uh, we've had for the last uh, couple of weeks is the word walk. Uh, the first uh, three chapters of the book of Ephesians are about our position in Christ. And uh, since we hit chapter 4, it's changed from our position in Christ to our walk and the way God wants us to live. And uh, we're starting a section about holiness, the fact that God wants us to walk in holiness. And uh, <clears throat> the word holy is not new for us in uh, the first section of the book, uh, we started in, in uh, verse 3. So this is Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. With uh, the fact that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And the first blessing that we're told about in that section is the blessing of holiness. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So as God, from the beginning of time, planned how to bless us, this is the first one he thought of, is being holy. And um, we often think about, well, I'll be holy when I get to heaven. God doesn't want us to wait till we get to heaven to be holy. We often say that Jesus came to save us from hell. And it's true that he came to save us from hell, but it doesn't actually say that in the scriptures. We have in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, uh, this was the message given to Jesus' parents before he was born. They were told that she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins, right? Now, we say that salvation has three tenses in it. It has the past tense, it has the present tense, and it has the future tense. And the past tense is that Jesus has, in the past, saved us from the penalty of our sins. And that's what it means to be saved from hell. I will not have to pay the penalty of my sins, which is a wonderful truth, and we shouldn't have to go any further than that. But we're also told that in the future tense, God will save us from the presence of sins. Right now, we live in a world that's less than perfect, Tom, right? We're still in the presence of sins. And, you know, I don't really have to go to the street and see a criminal. I can look in the mirror and see an issue with sin. But God didn't just save us from the penalty of sin. He will one day save us from the presence of sins, which is what it means to be in heaven. Heaven is a perfect place. But he presently now saves us from the power of sin. And uh, that's what we want to talk about today. Jesus, that's what the passage that's in front of us is about, Jesus saving us from the power of sin. So there's going to be four principles in this passage of what Jesus did to save us from the power of sin, or rather, how am I to walk and have a holy life, which is one of God's purposes for me, one of the blessings that God planned for me. So principle number one, I have a picture for that. You need to go against the flow if you want to have a holy life. And uh, we have it for us in verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Now this is hard for us to go against the flow. We're natural conformists. When I'm in a room full of people and we're all, everybody's doing something, I want to do the same thing. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to go against the flow. And because of that, Paul gives us, I lost count, I think it's something like five, depending how you count, good reasons of why we have to go against the flow in this world. We can't live like the people around us live. The first one is that this world walks in the futility of their mind. And the word futility means emptiness or without purpose or without value. Now this is not says, all these things are not said about the world so that we can look down at other people, but just so that we don't think we should be following in the same path as other people do. It says they're living in the futility of their mind. What does that mean? Well, I have a nine-year-old girl, she's in fourth grade, and uh, you know, in kindergarten it's not a big deal, but as they advance, there's, there's more and more pressure to try to get your child prepared for the next stage. So right now they're offering these after-school programs or classes that will help your child be better prepared so that when they get eventually to high school and they take these all-important tests like the SAT and I don't know what they have these days, they'll do well. Well, why, why is it so important to prepare them so that they'll do well? Well, so that they'll get to a good college. But why is it so important that they get to a good college? Well, so that they can get a good job. Well, why is it so important that they get a good job? Well, so that they can have a comfortable retirement. Well, why is it so important that people have a comfortable retirement? Well, so we get to have a little bit of fun before we die. 
You see, all this, you know, purposes and everything this world is driving to ends at death. And because of that, it is futile in God's mind. The eternal God that looks across eternity and sees eternal souls of men, either in hell or in heaven, is saying, this is futile. This world is living without a purpose. And that's why we don't want to follow the examples of people around us as they are putting their kids into program or whatever it is they're doing, we need to realize it's not leading to anywhere of any value. Don't follow their example. Uh, the next uh, thing Paul tells us, and uh, he says it in a number of ways. He says they're, they're having their understanding darkened, and later he says because of the ignorance that is in them, uh, and then he says because of the hardening of their heart or the blindness of their heart, and he talks about the fact that people here don't know the truth. Now, we have this book. It's called the Bible. I've said it before, but it's kind of a neat acronym. The Bible is Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. B-I-B-L-E. Basic Instruction Before Leaving Earth. The problem with this world is they're not following this book. You know, that's why their understanding is darkened. That is why there is ignorance in them, and that is why uh, there is blindness in their heart. They're not following God's revealed will. It's kind of like the blind leading the blind. You that can see, and I'm talking, assuming you're a child of God, should not be following blind people who cannot see. They're not going to lead you to a good place. Go against the flow. Uh, third one we have is uh, that they're alienated from the life of God. We're told in 1 John 2:15 and 16, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. We live in a world that is hostile to God. Even if the world, even if people in the world knew what God wanted them to do, they would not do it. In fact, God gave us the law to show us that we are sinners. He tells, gives us the law saying what we should do. And when people look at the law of God, they cannot help but break the law of God. If you put a sign on your window saying, do not break this window, guess how long that window will last? Not very long. That's the world we live in. It's naturally hostile to God. You don't want to follow this world. The fourth one we have is this world is described as being past feeling. God, in his mercy to us, has given the human race a conscience. I was born with a conscience. You were born with a conscience. And as we violate that conscience and I do something that is wrong, I feel a pinprick. I should feel I just did something that's wrong. It should hurt. Now, the problem is that if you do it again and again, if you're, a, as I understand, a lady, and, or a man, for that matter, and you saw, you have a needle and you keep moving it, you know, it pricks your finger. Okay, that hurts. Well, it'll happen again, and again, and again, and eventually you develop, as I understand, I don't have one of those, a nice callus, and you don't feel the prick so much. Your skin just got thicker in that spot. It protects you. Well, the problem with this world, and people in this world, is they do the wrong thing again and again 
and again until there's no more feeling. They don't even feel like they're doing something that's wrong. Don't follow this world. Go against the flow. Uh, the last one we have here is it says that who being past feeling have given themselves over to licentiousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Uh, the word licentiousness here uh, typically applies to uh, using the sexual relationship that God has created in inappropriate ways, in excessive ways. God created the sexual relationship as a particular part of the human um, experience when you're in a, a situation when you're a man and a woman married together, there is a place for the sexual relationship. It's a good thing within God's construct of it. The human race has taken it and blown it way out of proportion, suggesting that it's the greatest thing that's out there. I don't know, if you're like me, you might be getting these emails suggesting you need to be changing your body in order to have a, you know, a better sex life, and you should be taking certain drugs in order to have a better sex life, with the idea that that's what life is all about. And that's not what life is all about. It's perverting what God has given us. It's blowing it out of proportion. We're told in 1 Corinthians 6.13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. God didn't give you the body to go out and use it up in sexual, immoral ways. He gave you the body to serve him. That's the purpose of your body. Do not follow the world. Go against the flow. So that's principle number one. If we want to be holy, we have to go against the flow. Principle number two, I called it go for the gold. Go for the gold, that's uh, what the athletes are supposed to do when they're competing they want to be the best. They want to hit the, the perfect mark. And uh, God has given us that perfect mark to go to. It's called the Lord Jesus. It says, but you have not so learned Christ, meaning Christ is, is uh, what we have been taught as the way to walk. As believers, we're, we're said to be disciples of Christ. And the word disciple has lost its meaning. We have a, an educational system today that's like a machine. And it just churns out students. You go to a class, and they're going to fill your head with math. And then you go to the next class, and they'll feed your head with physics or chemistry. And you'll go to the next one, and they'll feed it with uh, English or rhetoric. And somehow at the end of this process, you come out and you know all these things. But uh, learning or being a disciple, Jesus said what the purpose of being a disciple is so that you will be exactly like your master. Being disciples of Jesus doesn't just mean that we're getting some intellectual facts from him. It means we want to be like him. We want to be trained and be like him. What is the standard that Jesus gives us? When I used to work at a company called TMPI a number of years ago, some of you may remember, I think I took some of you to a tour to see what all the chemicals do. We were cleaning uh, machine parts for the semiconductor industry. And often the machine parts were contaminated with terrible things like silver and gold. And uh, we had to remove that contamination from those machine parts. 
And so it all ended up in the waste. And the waste in our process basically looked like dirt because we, we tried to you know, filter everything out. You know, we, we didn't want to accumulate more waste than we had to because it costs money to get rid of your waste. Well, so we've done such a good job over the years in getting rid of all, you know, everything that we could put down the drain. So at the end of the day, we were just left with something that looked like dirt, and it had a certain concentration of precious metals in it. And part of my job was to try to determine the value of it. Is there enough precious metals here that instead of, of um, putting it in a landfill, we can actually send, sell it to somebody, and that person will extract the gold out, and they make money, and we got money. We don't have to pay for the landfill, so it's a good deal. So I would take a sample of that dirt, and I would send it to a lab, and uh, they would, uh, uh, can I get the picture up there? Jacob, the test tube. <laughs> they would uh, subject the dirt to uh, you know, various corrosive chemicals, and maybe heat and various other things. And the only things that can survive through that is a noble metal like gold. And so hopefully, if there's value in this you know, big thing of dirt that I had, at the end of the day, after all the tests, you skin it out, there's going to be some gold that's left. Now, uh, there was something similar that happened in Jesus' life. Jesus was tested. Now, in the case of Jesus, when he's tested, it's not the issue of trying to see if there's any gold at the bottom. The question, is there anything but gold? Uh, something I didn't know until I recently looked it up. Uh, pure gold is 24 carat. Okay? I have a ring on my finger. I think it's about 14 carat. And uh, so it means it's not as pure as it could be. It's only about 50% gold. When Jesus is tested, the purpose is to see, is, is he pure gold? Is he 24 carat gold? Or is there something else in there? <clears throat> and uh, the passage that, that uh, describes the testing, uh, you may want to turn there. Just, uh, we could, we'll go ahead and read that passage. Is in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 1 says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So it is interesting here that clearly God is participating in this. Satan doesn't have the power to take Jesus against Jesus' will and test him. And clearly God is participating because the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness because God wanted to show us the gold. He wanted to show us that Jesus was 24 karat gold, and give us the aim that we should have in our lives if we want to be holy, like Jesus is holy. The devil, has no, <coughs> the devil has another purpose. He is trying to find impurity. He is trying to show some imperfection. And that's the purpose of, of the devil as he's doing these tests. But the first one, 
Jesus is hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Like you would be hungry at the end of 40 days. I, I don't last well six hours not eating. 40 days Jesus hasn't eaten. He's hungry. He has a body like you and me. And Satan is saying, well, you know, if you are the son of God, you have the power. Command these stones to become bread and you'll have something to eat. Right? Seems reasonable. Jesus is hungry. He has a real need here. And Jesus' response is, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. No, I'm not going to do it unless God tells me to do it. That is the only thing that moves me. I like Rick's definition of holiness. We often think holiness, well, that means I don't sin. I like uh, Rick Bellas. He, he was the one who introduced me to that phrase. Being holy is being devoted to God, all out for God. And that's what we have Jesus here. Is like, unless God tells me to do it, I am not, man shall not live by bread alone. I, I acknowledge that I'm going to need some nutritional food to survive. But I will only do it if it comes by the word of God. Devoted to God. Only by God's word. The next test in verse 5 says, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. One of the things we need to realize about this passage is Satan is offering Jesus something legitimate. To rule over this world is why Jesus came into this world. When Herod asks him, are you a king? Jesus says, uh, yes, and for this purpose I have come into this world. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the one that deserves to rule over this world. What Satan offered him, the rulership of this world, was legitimate. Jesus deserved that rulership. But what was not legitimate is Satan was suggesting the end justifies the means. Here's the end. It's right. You should rule the world. Well, all I'm asking is that you just bow down before me and worship me. Does the end justify the means? Not to Jesus. Not to the gold. Not to the standard of God. The end never justifies the means. Jesus would do nothing that would not bring glory to the Father. And bowing down before Satan does not bring glory to the Father. The test of holiness, every action that I do should bring glory to God. The end does not justify the means. The next test in verse 9, then he, or Satan, brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt 
the Lord your God. Again, what Satan is offering here is technically legitimate. Jesus is the Son of God, and it is right for Jesus to be revealed for who he is. In fact, we're told that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And essentially, that's what would happen if Jesus would cast himself from the temple in the midst of the activity and worship going on there, and God will catch him with some angels so that he comes down to the ground without getting hurt and kind of lands like that, everybody will realize that this is the Messiah. This is what they've been expecting, the Messiah to come. Jesus can enter into the temple in a way that everyone will recognize for who he is. And yet Jesus' answer is, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You will not put God to the test. Really, what, what that would be doing is forcing God's hand to do something that technically God will one day do, but trying to get God to do it your way and on your schedule. Um, you know, some of us, I know, would like to be married. And to have a wife is a good thing. So you could say, this is the will of God. And uh, you could uh, figure out a way to make it happen, to marry somebody, to get someone to marry you. <clears throat> but if it's not God's way and God's time, it is wrong. It is testing God. It's not following God. Let God be God. Jesus was going to wait for God's time and God's way for him to be revealed. <coughs> and then we have the fourth test. And uh, maybe that piques your curiosity because there's only three tests in this passage. But there's a fourth test alluded to in verse 13. It says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. Satan just left until he had another opportunity to get at Jesus. This was not the last temptation. Now, it could be that there was more than one additional temptation, but there's at least one we know about because on the night that Jesus spent the last time with his disciples, after he ate with them and on his way to, uh, to uh, the garden where he would be arrested, he said this to them. He said, the ruler of this world was coming, and he has nothing in me. When Judas was bringing people to arrest Jesus, it was not Judas alone that was coming. It was Satan. And he was coming for the final test. And that final test was the cross. And I don't know exactly what means Satan had to tempt Jesus during that time, but his goal was, again, remember, to find something other than 24 karat gold. He's looking for an opportunity to show there's something in Jesus other than pure perfection and love to the Father. And in the cross, as Jesus suffered, maybe on the way to the cross, and throughout the entire process, there would have been an opportunity to try to get Jesus to turn against the Father. This is too much. I can't take this all. And come off the cross or do something else, suggesting less than perfect devotion to the Father. But Jesus stayed there. Now, 
We think about the fact that Jesus stayed there for us, and it is true. Ephesians 5.2 says that we should walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. So on the cross, Jesus did suffer for us, thinking of how he will save us from our sins. But it was also an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Jesus was 24 karat gold, completely consumed for the Father. Nothing would stop him from this total devotion. And so the whole cross became this act of worship to God where he gave himself to the Father unreservedly. And that's the example he gives to you and to me of living a, a holy life, a life devoted to God, completely consumed for him. <clears throat> Excuse me. The third principle we have, so back to our passage in Ephesians. <clears throat> Excuse me that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God, in righteousness and holiness. So we're told to do something like taking off the old man and then putting on the new man which might be kind of confusing if you don't know what the old man is and what the new man is. And uh, I can tell you the old man represents the old sinful nature, and the new man represents your new perfect nature that you have. You might still say, well, how do I take off my old nature? That's kind of hard. And how do I put on this new nature? You know, how, since when do I have power to change my very nature? <coughs> And so we're going to turn to Romans chapter 6 and see, first of all, what God has done. What God has done regarding your old and new nature. And then secondly, what is it that God wants you to do about it? <clears throat> Romans chapter 6. In verse 1, says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall we continue a life of sin, being saved? <clears throat> Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Here's the key word. We died to sin. We'll get back to it. Oh, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, 
that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, I know this is kind of difficult uh, to fully understand, and so I try to, to put some of the major points on the board so you can follow with me. But the first thing to realize is our problem with sin is very, very serious. It's part of our nature. We have a sinful nature. And uh, it's easy for people to disbelieve it until they have children. And then they see, boy, I don't have to teach them to do wrong things. They figure that out all on their own. Uh, besides which, the scripture teaches us. And if you're honest with yourself, you know that's the truth about you. You have a sinful nature. You have a natural tendency to do what's wrong. Now, this is a problem if you're going to be holy, right? You have a sinful nature. God wants you to be holy. Uh, the only way you can lose your sinful nature is by death. Your sinful nature is part of you. There's just no way to get rid of a sinful nature without dying. Now, the good news is you don't have to die to get rid of your old nature because Jesus died for that purpose. And we have that for us <clears throat> in verse 5. And I guess I should look behind me. I didn't do a good job keeping it. Okay, so only death can deliver us from our sinful nature. Forgive me as I look behind, behind my shoulders. Uh, the good news is we don't have to die because Jesus died. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. Usually we talk about the fact that Jesus dies for our sins. That's what it means that, that uh, he paid the penalty for our sins. I don't have to pay for it. Here it says Jesus died to our sin or to sin once for all, meaning he did it once. He died once to sin. But that accounts for you and for me as well. He didn't just die to pay the penalty for my sins. He died to sin because that was the only way I can be delivered from sin. I have to die to sin. Well, in order for me not to have to die to get rid of my sinful nature, Jesus died so that I could get rid of my sinful nature. Uh, the next point of the passage is that when we are saved, we are placed into Christ. This is a doctrine called uh, federal headship. And the idea is that there's someone who represents you. There's the federal government represents us. When they're making a decision of uh, attacking Syria, and Syria sends terrorists to bomb our country, well, that's because the action of our government represented us. Now, before we were saved, we are said to be in Adam. Adam represents us to God. And because Adam sinned, that's why I inherited a sinful nature. When I am saved, God takes me out of Adam, or the federation, if you would, of Adam, and places me into Christ, or the federation of Christ. And suddenly what Christ did is accounted to me as if I have done it. So that Christ died to sin, not me, but now it's accounted to me. And because, because in Christ I have died to sin, Sin has no more power over me. My sinful nature no longer rules me. I'm no longer under its power. That's why it says in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, 
that we should no longer be slaves of sins. I'm not a slave of sin anymore. Even though I was born with a sinful nature, God has delivered me from the power of my sinful nature by virtue of Jesus' death being accounted to me. <clears throat> so that's the first half. That's why I can put off the old man. I couldn't if Jesus didn't do this. The other half is the fact that now I have a new man or a new nature, and it's, it, the, the thought is parallel to this. If when Christ died, he died for my sin, when he rose from the dead, he rose so that I can have a new life. When Jesus rose, I received a new nature. When I, when I was placed into Christ, his new life becomes my new life. And so not just I have a new life now, but my new life is like Jesus, and I actually have the same nature that Jesus has, which is an amazing thought. That's why it could say in Ephesians that we have a new nature with true righteousness and holiness. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, 2-4, is a similar thought to this thought, It says, uh, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The same general thought. He has given to us what we need in order to live a holy life. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. I received a new nature just like the nature of Christ. And that is why I can be holy like Jesus was holy, because he actually gave me his nature. Amazing. Okay, principle number four, and we're still in Romans, is what do I need to do? Wonderful. Jesus puts away the old nature or releases me from the power of the old nature. Jesus gives me a new nature that is like his nature, righteous and holy. Well, what do I need to do? Well, the first thing you need to do is believe it. And... Uh, that's what verse 11 says. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Reckon it. You must believe what he did. Now, I used to think, well, I need to believe that I have the power. And that's how I can be holy. But it's not what it says. It says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You must believe that he has the power. You must believe what God said, which is when you were united with Christ because of his death on the cross, the power of the old nature is gone. And because you've been united in Christ and he rose from the dead, you have received a new nature with which you can serve God with perfect holiness. Okay? You need to believe that he has the power that what he said is true. Our life must be a life of faith. We're not just saved by faith. We must live by faith in him. He is glorified 
He is pleased with faith. And that's the principle, the first principle uh, we need to live by. Now, it's difficult for us to believe for one reason, and that is the fact that we still have sinful tendencies. The power of the old man is gone, but its attempts to uh, get me to sin are not. I still have the old nature with me. And uh, an illustration that was given to me I thought was helpful was this. If you were a slave, when uh, slavery was legal in this country, <clears throat> you had a master and he used to make you do all kinds of wicked things, you had to do them because he was your master. And if you didn't obey him, he could flog you and even have you killed. And so you obeyed and you did what your master told you to do. But then a good uh, person comes along and buys you as a slave and you're no longer working for the bad slave master. Now you have a good slave master that just wants you to do good and wonderful things. And so you're you know, enjoying serving him. But uh, you know, the old wicked slave master is just on the other side of the fence and he's calling you instructions. No, 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 don't do that. Go do this. And you're used to it. You're used to obeying that voice. And so you follow the instructions of the old, or you could, old slave master, but you don't have to. He has no power over you. If you say, no, he can't come after you. He can't whip you anymore or kill you or whatever he, would, he could do to you in the past. In the same way, our old nature is still with us, still wants us to sin, but it has no power over us. The second thing we need to do, so believe it, number one, oh, just one more thought about the evidence that God really did what he said and delivered us from the power of the sinful nature and given us a new nature is uh, the fact that now there's this battle going on in our life. You know, we keep wanting to do what's right, we're doing what's wrong, you know, we're doing what's right, but we're tempted to do what's wrong. Before I was saved, there was no battle in my life. It was very simple. I just did what was wrong. I did whatever I wanted to. I didn't care. Once I got saved is when the battle began. And to have war, you need two sides. So because now I really have two sides, I have a new nature that wants to do what God wants me to do, and I still have the evil nature that wants me to not do what God wants me to do, there's warfare in my life. The very fact there's warfare is evidence of what God has accomplished, that he delivered me from the power of one and has given me a new nature. Okay. Second thing I have to do, first thing was believe it. Second thing, as I illustrated, just say no. And uh, that's in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. The fact that God says it says two things. First of all, your sinful nature will try to possess your life and take over again. And the second is you have the power to say no oh, he wouldn't give you this commandment. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Second, third thing we have to do is keep busy for God. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Uh, there's a saying that says, idle hands 
are the tools of the devil. And someone taught me the second half of it, an idle mind is the playground of the devil. And what he tells us here is we need to offer ourselves to God as part of the solution. If I don't offer myself to God and say, well, great, God saved me from the sinful nature. Uh, well, you know, I just would like to relax and not do anything. Well, you're not doing what God wants you to. You're not occupying your life with holiness and doing what God wants you to do. Guess what? It's really easy for the sinful nature to walk in and repossess, in a sense, your life. So part of living a holy life is really keeping busy for God. And it says your members, so it's not just, you know, some part of you, all parts of you need to be used for God. That is the only way to live the holy life. Not, life. not serve the Lord on Sunday and Wednesday, not the rest of the week. That will not result in a holy life. You want to live a holy life? It means you have to turn yourself to the Lord, all of you. <clears throat> Fourth principle, and the last one, you got to do it again every day. That we had for us actually in uh, the passage in Ephesians, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You have to do it again. You have to do it again. Now, we have this song we like to sing, and in fact, we, uh, we sang it uh, on Friday, and I enjoy it. It's one of my favorite. Uh, Come thou fount of every blessing, teach my heart to sing thy praise. And there's a verse in it that we sing with a lot of enthusiasm. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter Fetter is, uh, I guess, something they use to kind of tie you up, attach you to something. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We want God to just keep our heart and seal it and never have a desire to do wrong again. It's a beautiful thought, but it's not scriptural. <laughs> We will have to face that battle every day. And uh, we may ask the question, why? First of all, we ask God, why didn't you just take me to heaven when you saved me? Why do I have to be here on earth? And then we'll say, well, God, at least if I stay on earth, take the sinful nature completely away so I never have a desire to sin again. I mean, that would be a nice thing. And yet God doesn't. And as I was thinking about it, it made me think of uh, Joshua. And uh, if you remember, we recently studied the book of Joshua and how Joshua comes into the land. And, you know, there were a couple of hiccups. But overall, Joshua was a great leader, and Israel, trusting in the Lord, walks in and vanquished the land. And you think, boy, what, you know, wonderful victory. They now have the promised land that God promised them. They can enjoy God's fruit. And then you move on to the book of Judges, and you find that didn't quite happen. Actually, Joshua just won the great critical battles that had to be won. There was still much land to be possessed. And you ask the question, why, God? Why, why didn't you uh, have Joshua take all the land? And then the rest of the Israelites could just, you know, the rest of the generation could just sit there and enjoy the land. And the reason for it is God wanted every generation to have an opportunity in participating in the taking of the land. Each generation had an opportunity to express faith in God and enjoy the power of God as they were claiming the promised land. And that's what God wants for you and for me in regards to holiness. 
Jesus has won the critical battles. He disabled the power of our sinful nature. He gave us a new nature like his that loves God and wants to serve God. But he wants us to enter the battle. And every day, choose to say no to sin and to say yes to God. Let me read to you, if I may, in uh, the remaining minute, a song written by Steve Greens. This is in closing. Called, O Man of God, Arise. O Man of God, Arise, Awake from slumber's night, Shake off sin's drowsiness, And rouse yourself to fight. Run from vain distraction. Keep your vision clear. Cast out all fleshly stowaways. Refuse to harbor fear. Lift up the cup of holiness. Drink long and take your fill. O man of God, arise to carry out God's will. O man of God, arise. Take up your sword and shield. Your foe has no defense against the power they wield. Christ has gained the victory. The outcome is assured. Satan is defeated by the power of God's word. Lift up the cup of holiness. Drink long and take your fill. O man of God, arise to carry out God's will. O man of God, arise and face the eastern skies, for Christ will soon descend with lightning in his eyes. Then our ancient, ancient foe, long vanquished, will meet his rightful end, and sin's dark night of terror will never fall again. Lift up the cup of holiness, Drink long and take your fill. O man of God, arise to carry out God's will. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, stand amazed at the thought that one of the blessings uh, you uh, predestined us for from before the foundation of the earth is to be holy. And to think that that means to be as holy as Christ and in your presence. Lord, we recognize that you've done everything necessary for us to live holy lives, and you call upon us to do our part to enjoy that gift you've given to us. Lord, we ask for uh, faith in what you've done for us and for strength to day by day do what you called us to do, to enjoy this gift of holiness. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.